Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Chad here with IRAT Veteran 8888. Today, we've got another gun gripe episode for you, and we're going to be discussing, all right, or asking the question, rather, is there a market cap on used guns? And primarily what we're discussing is collectible guns, but I guess really any used gun could go into this category. What is the market cap, right? Is there a limit on how much a collectible gun could be worth in the future? We're seeing a lot of really interesting trends with military surplus and things like that, even some surplus ammo. So we are going to discuss it. We'll get into today's gun gripe. Before we get started, I would like to thank our friends at CMMG. If you're looking for anything in the AR realm, they are definitely your go-to source. They've got some awesome hybrid systems like the MK47, which of course you know is a 7.62 by 39 AR. It takes AK mags, really cool setup. Uh, they've got also their descent line, which is their bufferless pistols and rifles that they sell. They make some great 22 conversion kits. Uh, look, they've got some great stuff going on. If you use the code IV8888, uh, when you do business with them, that will let them know that we sent you. And a big thanks to CMMG uh, for supporting our efforts here on the channel and supporting the Second Amendment community at large. Okay, so Chad and I were having this discussion earlier. And uh, it, it's interesting to see what the prices on used guns have, have, have done. It, it's kind of nuts, isn't it? Yeah, interesting is not the word I would use. So, like, fascinating. Yeah. It really is. Like, being in into guns for, you know, a couple of decades now plus, right, you kind of start seeing these trends going on. And, you know, you, uh, you talk to old-timers who look back at, like, the old, um, the old catalogs and you'd see SKSs for – 79 bucks or whatever mosins for 59 dollars crates of ammo for like 80 bucks like oh those were the golden days the good old days right and now like we kind of live through our good old days too and seeing the price on guns is just incredible but um we were thinking like is there is there a cap you know can guns just reach a certain value and they just kind of stay there you know or is the sky the limit yeah so i think there's a few a few things to consider, especially like just to give you an example, like modern guns. All right. Think about ARs, right? Back in the day, they were just a handful of like good manufacturers, right? You had Colt, like Olympic arms, DPMS, uh, Bushmaster, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Now there's ARs out the wazoo. I mean, you know, we even have Argos. Argos is making ARs, right? So I, and like, there's so many very inexpensive options. I think it brings the overall cost and like, you know, down, Right. The more that's on the market of a given product, the lower the cost overall is going to be, right? The average price. But um, when you're talking about mill serps and collectibles, they're not making any more of those, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, supply and demand is always going to be a component to any any type of aftermarket price on a given commodity. And that's just basic economics. But when it comes to guns, I feel like it's a considerably different type of scenario because you do have so many gun owners and you, you've got a huge pool of people that have a lot of demand for certain types of firearms. And, uh, of course, you have to increase supply in order to keep the prices reasonable. And, and of course, we see that with the AR. When you look at someone like Palmetto State Armory, we've mentioned this in, in a lot of previous videos that, you know, yes, you can buy a very inexpensive AR that will certainly serve you and work well enough to protect yourself with. And if it's all you can get for the money, it's certainly better than not having a gun at all. But the only reason they can keep the prices like that is because they're selling so many of them, right? So if there were some situation, let's just say where um, here would be an example where an M1 Garand service rifle, for instance, if they discovered a warehouse somewhere with a million of them in it, 
and they could somehow import them and bring them in and sell them on the open market. Well, would that make the Garand that you have right now worth less? Maybe for a time it would, right? And anytime you infuse a certain amount of supply into a situation that previously was unknown, it's always going to make, make it, well, now there's a million more of them. So it's kind of a little bit less rare at that point. I mean, it's still rare. It's still collectible, but maybe it's worth a little bit less. A great example is the Nepalese cash that came out of the Royal Arsenal of Nepal. Uh, there was a time when, you know, getting a Martini Henry service rifle was not exactly the easiest thing to do. Like they were around, but they weren't as common as they were once that Royal Arsenal uh, was taken from Nepal. And it was like literal truckloads of cannons, swords, um, you know, guns, machine guns, even tons of crazy stuff that they took out of that arsenal. Um, so sometimes you find those hidden treasures that now make a gun that was once extremely rare, uh, much more common. So there are undiscovered treasures all around the world. Uh, in fact, when the Russians took the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, uh, not too long ago, they've expended a lot of, a lot of men to take that city. But when they did take the city, they, I think there was like some, salt mine or some type of mines that were below the city. And when they went through this mine, they discovered a humongous cache of um, American M1 Thompson machine guns, Druganov uh, service rifles, Barrett M107s, crates of SKSs, SVDs, crates of RPGs, all sorts of stuff just in these mines where the storage uh, conditions in a mine is obviously perfect. Now, on the open market, those guns would be worth a considerable amount of money if they could somehow find their way back to some sort of a collector's market, per se. But the point I'm making is that when you have a limited supply, the price is always going to be what it's going to be. I mean, look at the total production of Finnish M39 service rifles compared to the amount of production of Russian uh, M9130 service rifles, which were somewhere, what, 47 million or so. Subsidies. 9130 service rifles produced, whereby the, 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 the Finnish military only produced, I want to say about 230,000 M39 service rifles. Now, when you just compare numbers to numbers, now we've already discussed this briefly in a previous video, Chad, but it's just interesting that People don't realize just how rare the M39 is compared to the M9130. All they see is a Mosin, and they're like, oh, that's just some Russian gun. But they don't understand. Like, you get looking at them and comparing them, that gun's a Cadillac. It is. Compared to, I mean, you're, you're, you're driving a, a jalopy when you're shooting the Russian gun, but when you're holding that finished gun, you got a match grade barrel, adjustable sights with like good fine adjustments, a nice pistol grip grafted into mm -hmm. the stock. I mean, they're just nicer guns, all hex receivers, no, none of that wartime round receiver crap, like good stuff. So once people begin to see quality for what it is, price now has a considerably different factor to them. And we've noticed that. In some times past, you could pick up M39s for $175. And now, once people understand how rare they are and how good a quality they are, now the prices are out the roof. You've got some of them that are selling for $1,000, $1,200, maybe even $1,500 for one rifle. Yeah. When you look into the, um, when you look into the details of that line of guns too, there's like subsects of higher, uh, like higher tier, more collectible guns. You know, like the B barrel guns, the sneaks, you know, the, the T marked guns that were, uh, like example guns or test guns for an entire rack of guns in an armory somewhere. Yeah. Um, but 
when Classic had that last big um, you know, shipment, it was like, what, 10,000-plus guns that came in. Right. When they sold through that, like that's pretty much it. So what's out there on the market is what's out there on the market, and the market literally dictates the value. Um, you know, I, I recently went looking – just out of curiosity, um, you know, the Israeli AR-7 pilot survival rifle that I have. Okay. <laughs> Get your pocketbook All out. Right? So <laughs> I went looking for one and this is an issue. This is, this is one thing I wanted to discuss in the video is, um, how can you ascertain the value of a given firearm unless you just, you put it out there on the market for sale if you can't find any other examples for sale? Like that right. gun, when I bought it, I paid 700 bucks for it, but I saw some people like, toying around with the idea of like maybe 1100, 1200, 13, 1400 bucks for this thing. And, and you know, but there's not been another one sold and there's not a single one on Gunbroker. I can't find one on any of the forums for sale mm -hmm. and they're just non-existent. So how do you ascertain the value of a gun like that? Well, yeah. you know, what's interesting is I will say that a lot of the value that you're going to see out of a given firearm has to do with the market in which you sell that firearm as a used commodity. Um, look, I use Gunbroker quite a bit. It's a great way to liquidate stuff if you need to, you know, pretty much just let it ride for a penny and just see, let the market dictate what the value is. And nine times out of ten, you're probably going to realize a pretty decent value out of especially any collectible gun that you put on a platform like that. But there's a big difference between putting a gun on Gunbroker and putting a gun up at Christie's or at uh, Rock Island mm -hmm. or somewhere like that where they're highly publicizing the auctions and the clientele is probably a little more spendy. Mm -hmm. and, and to be fair, the items are certainly well, way more collectible. Clientele is also more discerning. Right. They know exactly what they're looking for and right. that they know why they're shopping there. That's correct. So, so, so with, with that in mind, okay. Um, for instance, I've got a very rare Schwinburn Henry sporting rifle that was gunsmithed by James Kerr. And I happened to catch it on Gunbroker, and uh, it was one of those listings where someone had just listed the gun, and I don't think they really knew what it was, and they they priced it at a penny starting bid, and you would think, okay, well, maybe there's people out there that understand what they're looking at and know exactly what it is, or they know who James Kerr is with the Adams Kerr revolver, or like you know that built Confederate sharpshooting rifles in the Civil War, like they would know that name if they did the research. But something told me, like, I think this gun is more valuable than meets the eye. And sure enough, I, I bid on it and I ended up getting it for a pretty decent sum of money. It, it wasn't, it didn't go for super cheap, but it definitely wasn't as expensive as I thought it would go for. So I'm thinking, all right, cool. I get the gun in and I do some more research. And sure enough, that exact rifle sold at Christie's auction house for like $7,000 a decade ago. And I paid about 1200 for it. Yeah. So, so that was 10 the years venue ago. will always dictate. Yeah. what a gun will bring in terms of value. Like maybe it's just that the gun broker audience wasn't in the know enough to know exactly what that was and, and who that guy was and the formula bluing that was used on that rifle. Mm -hmm. So there's tons of things like that. I think knowledge has a huge um, place in this, right? Uh, I picked up, you know, again on gun broker, uh, you guys probably remember, I think we did a video on, um, on, the Wesley Richards that uh, that Mark Novak fixed and cleaned up. I think we did a dedicated video on that gun, if I'm not mistaken. But I've got that side-by-side -side Wesley Richards with a 12-bore on one side and a 577-450 Martini Henry on the other. It's a cape gun. And it was an export cape gun. So it was not fancy. It ain't got all the engraving. 
But Mark Novak wound up determining that it is a real Wesley Richards. And I'm not even going to tell you what I paid for it because you're going to slap me. You guys would slap me through the camera if I told you how little money I paid for that rifle. But what's it worth? Well, who knows? Mark thinks it's worth a pile of money, but he knows what it is. The person selling it didn't know enough about it to know that what it was really other than the basic caliber and that it said Wesley Richards. But how many people know what a Wesley Richards even is or, or, or would even think to look for a gun like that uh, of that value? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking Wesley Richards that bring, you know, some of those guns are 80 grand, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, um, (laughs) now this one's an antique. It's not a modern Wesley Richards. It's an old one. Um, I think about transferable machine guns too, because, Several years ago, I was looking at possibly buying like an M11 or an M10, and I'd saved up some money. And by the time I'd saved enough money for what the value was at the time, they had already gone up in value. They had already gone up in value, and the prices were out of my range. And I'm like, well, I can continue to save money, but I probably will never be able to catch up. All right, that's the problem. And you know, now a lot of M10s and M11s, uh, the transferable max, you know, they can be what ten grand. Between seven, eight, nine, ten grand now, right? Yeah. In a lot of cases, and transferable market is is weird because it's such a niche market within a niche market, right? Yeah. Like NFA is already niche enough, but you know if if you go through like mainstream channels, the prices are going to be sky high. But if you're dealing with like if you're dealing with private market, you know, individual to individual, word of mouth sales, that sort of thing, um, the the process is the same. Right, as just a normal private sale, it's just you have to do the, the paperwork on it. But a lot of times, like guys who have had, like, say, a Norel trigger pack or something for a 1022 for years, they may have paid like four grand for it and they might be worth 15, but they'll take 10,000. Right. right. So there's like, there's two different values. It almost in there. becomes a point, Chad, where, where it's a knowledge base, but it's also a relationship base. It and, is. um, and, and I don't want to make this exact, distinction necessarily but i'm going to go ahead and make it because it's a great distinction to make in regards to what you're talking about with transferables in the music world it's the same thing okay as these dealers that go around and buy three hundred thousand dollar less pause every week like it's a routine thing okay you're talking people that have 59 bursts or they got a 1962 strat or something like that they're not just going to sell that to some joe blow Right. There, there are people whose jobs it is, is to call around and go, Hey, uh, you know, you got an old guitar laying around or they might post their number and they're a really well known acquirer of those things. Like basically where you know, if you can call this person that not only is it a going to be a guaranteed sale, but B, they're actually going to treat you right on it and give you a fair sum of money because they know that they're going to turn around and tack on their finder's fee. They're going to tack on their their amount of money, and they know what their clientele is willing to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, So they know what kind of wiggle room they have, and they're going to spend whatever's necessary to acquire that instrument because the resale value, I mean, in case you don't know, you're talking a, you know, a 1962 Strat in clean condition, unmessed with, with hang tags and the original case and stuff like that that they found under Grandpa Bob's bed. It was his original owner. You know, that guitar could be worth $75,000 to the right person. So the same thing happens with guns, right? People find guns under their bed and they're like, what is this? And maybe they don't know anything about guns. Like if you found this old double, you know, under your bed, under your grandpa's bed or something like that, or someone passed away and you found this, 
your average person would just think this is some random shotgun. They wouldn't know. They certainly wouldn't know what Wesley Richards means, or they wouldn't they wouldn't think to look down the barrel and go, well, wait a minute, one of those is rifled. Like people just don't they don't pay attention to details. And I think sometimes that knowledge is a huge part of what value really is. You have to be knowledgeable about the product that you're selling. You have to be knowledgeable about what makes something valuable, like having the knowledge to know production numbers for M39s. Now, I'm not going to claim to have every little bit of knowledge uh, coursing through my veins in terms of every little thing about every stock and screw and little component on every gun on the planet. But I know enough to know when I see potential in a piece, I can go, okay, maybe this merits some further research. This is something we probably need to uh, pay closer attention to. So I think it's just important to to make the distinction that you have to know something's rare too. Mm-hmm. It, it can't just, you know, just something simply being rare and you list it somewhere for sale. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to bring the top dollar unless it's put in front of the people in the right way and, and, and done in, in, in the correct fashion. Yeah, and put in front of the right people as and well. In front yeah. of the right people. Right. Um, you know, over the years we've seen prices go up on military surplus, I mean, to almost an exponential sense. And, um, you know, I just wonder as my kids get older if there's going to be kind of a market cap. Like at one point, like, all right, how much value can there be in a given firearm? Like old antique Winchesters and stuff. I mean, they've sort of like peaked out and they plateaued a bit and they go up and down in value here and there, right? Yeah. At what point does a gun become so valuable? It just kind of stays. That only a certain, a a very, very small group of people could even afford to buy it. And then what are the, what are the, the likelihood that someone's actually going to spend yeah. that kind of money that those guns demand for that gun. Or like you got That's, a rare old Winchester, like Chad is saying, that might be worth $15,000 or $20,000 or something like that. How many people, how many people, how many real people that you ran into on a regular basis are ever going to say, hey, check out this $20,000 Winchester I just bought? I'm not saying there's, look, they say there's a butt for every seat, right? Well, I'm not saying there's not a butt for the seat, but how many butts are there? That How many people out there at that point are going to spend 20 grand on a Winchester? How many people are going to drop $12,000 on an SVD mm-hmm. in a transit crate? That's just a, once a commodity becomes so valuable, it all, it's almost self-defeating mm-hmm. because then how are you going to part with it? How, how you can't replace it. For the, you're definitely not ever going to replace it for what you paid for it originally. Two, finding someone to pay what it's worth for it might be mm-hmm. difficult. So it's almost, it becomes a little bit self-defeating. Once you get into the real high-end world of guns, like you've almost kind of have to have thick skin to, mm-hmm. to kind of play real hardball on numbers. Because, well, that's that's kind of the point. And the people that spend that kind of money on those guns, do you think that they're stupid? You, you don't spend $20,000 on a gun by being stupid. They're not going to pay what it's worth. They're going to haggle. They're going to go, look, you're asking $20,000 for this rifle. Okay. I got 15. They're not going to turn down 15. They're just not because how many people are going around offering those kind of numbers on a one collectible gun? Probably not many people. Yep. So like K31s. All right. So <clears throat> at what point is it like, well, that's just too much for a K31. I mean, a ZK55 is still a four to $5,000 gun. Which is considered affordable for a sniper rifle. Yeah. So, but that price really hasn't gone anywhere for a number of years, right? But the regular old everyday man's K31s have gone from, you know, 170 bucks, 
200 bucks, 300, 400, 500, 700 dollars, right? In a lot of cases now, anywhere between yeah. about like six and 800 bucks is kind of the normal going rate for a good, clean K31. And now, when we when we were young, would we have paid seven hundred for one? No, that would have been like, I mean, dude, we didn't have that kind of money. I mean, heck, we still don't have that kind of money. But it's just like there's got to be to me, there's got to be some threshold where like it's just not going to go past that point. It's on, worth on what these. someone's willing to pay for. It. it is. So I think there's going to be a market cap on on the more affordable military surplus. Like, can you see? Mosins, a regular old 9130 being like a $1,600 gun? Potentially. Maybe. It was 48, 47 million or something. It was like several, like well over 40 million but of those guns were produced. What are they going for these days? 400 bucks? They're like four, four or 500 bucks. So, but they've, they've but kind then of. But the M39s are only a few hundred dollars more. It's like for me, if you're going to drop, boys and girls, if you're going to drop 400 bucks on a M9130 service rifle, spend a little bit more money and buy an M39, and that's probably going to be a better investment. Yeah. Now, obviously, notwithstanding, if you just need an M- M9130 for your collection, then obviously just buy the dang rifle. I hate to use it as such a commodity in terms of a – I'm not trying to make it out to be a derogatory thing. I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with Russian service rifles as collectibles. There's a – there's a lot of variants of them. They are fun to collect and, um, they're reasonably affordable, which is kind of nice. You know, I, I remember when Mausers were a lot more affordable. I went through a phase where I was buying Mauser variants like crazy, uh, when they were still relatively affordable. And, uh, and the same goes for the, for the Swiss and Finnish, uh, military service firearms, which I've been lucky enough to acquire quite a few. I remember when we could buy, uh, a crate of 40 M9130 service rifles for $3,800 shipped. A crate, 40 guns for 3,800 bucks. Mm-hmm. Now, 20 years ago, that was still a pile of money, but gosh, what a deal when you figure, I mean, that's, that's remember, not a lot of money. <laughs> remember the crates of like, you know, you got a 10 crate, uh, uh, or a 10, 10 piece crate of, um, you go M5966s. Uh-huh. It was like two grand. I think there were twenty rifle crates on the twenty rifle on the, crates uh, on the SKS. Okay, I think they were maybe like two or three thousand dollars or something because yeah. you got everything and they were brand new in the grease basically. I think like, they came out to about two hundred bucks a piece. I think by the time you, I mean, an all milled gun with a milled receiver, chrome line barrel. I mean, a solid military rifle for that kind of money is. Pretty dang hard to pass up, man. I haven't even looked at the prices of SKSs these days. I don't even want to think about it. That's one thing that I missed out on. I did not really buy that many SKSs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got got one State Arsenal 26 gun over there. It's a regular SKS. I've got one Polytech with the Cruciform bayonet that's in really clean condition. I've got a mint condition M5966A1. And then I've got an Albanian. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, SKS, but I don't really have a lot of SKSs. I've got a couple got of weird, like four. I've got a couple of weird ones. That one ghost SKS, like that pre 56, you yeah. know, that's like, how do you value that? And Ray has an SKS with a stamp receiver. Mm-hmm. How rare is that? So, I mean, how much is that gun worth? No telling how much. You got to put it I, in front of the right people. You got to put it in front of the right people. So I just worry about like my kids, um, you know, growing up and, and getting more into guns and wanting to collect on their own. And, you know, the problem is 
they might be priced out of the market. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my, that's my fear. I mean, we kind of got in on the second golden era, I guess, mm-hmm. if you will, but it's just, um, it's kind of a sad thing to think about. Like, you know, I can pass guns along, but they won't have the, the experience and pleasure of kind of the hunt and that satisfaction of finding things on their own and doing their own research and whatnot and being interested in it like we were. Well, there's always going to so. be gun shows. I mean, like, there's still always going to be the factor of walking through a gun show and going, oh, cool, this is some Ooh. rare whatever I'm trying to find, but you just better get ready for the sticker shock because, yeah. you know, obviously you're going to spend a lot of money. Gun show prices. Now, it's not always the case. I mean, like, there were some finds that I got at the Antique Arms Show out in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. We're talking during SHOT Show. You know, it would usually be near the end of SHOT Show. We would stay an extra day and go check out the Antique Arms Show. We're already there, right? And, man, like, I'm looking right now at a at a, uh, at a a a Swedish uh, Jungman that I picked up, and I I stole it for what I paid for it. And the, I, I, honestly, two of my favorite rifles that I own, I got at that show uh, in the same weekend. Oddly enough, I bought a uh, I bought a Portuguese Navy mm-hmm. contract Snyder rifle, which is arguably one of my favorite black powder guns to shoot. And I rolled the dice on it because the price was kind of low, and I thought, well, what's wrong with this freaking thing for what they're charging? Wasn't a damn thing wrong with it. It works great, right? And then on the Jungman, the guy, a guy was walking around with it, private seller. I got the gun with an extra magazine, seven hundred barking dollars. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so like there are deals out there, y'all. You just no. have to keep your eyes peeled and be savvy. Like know what you're looking at, you know. Mm-hmm. And you got to have a little spending money, you know, and have cash because cash talks. You can always get a better deal with cash. So, um, I guess that still does leave the question. I mean. Is there a market cap? Is there a point where a certain collectible gun will just top out in value and not increase anymore? I think the answer is no. I think the sky's the limit. And it's going to price certain people out eventually. I mean, think about it like this. Okay. Think about those Winchesters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, going back to those Winchesters that are worth fifteen, twenty thousand, twenty-five thousand dollars for a Winchester rifle. There was a time. There was a time. When some grandson went in grandpa's closet and there's some old Winchester and to grandpa, that was just the old Winchester he used to shoot rabbits or, or shoot food for the table or, or plank with or whatever, or maybe he got in gunfights with it. That's just his tool. Like, you know, to someone like that, that was just their rifle. So you have to remember at the end of the day, they're tools and, and why, whereby, yes, the collectible value of some of them can, can be kind of skyrocketing and everything. You have to remember that at one point it was just someone's trusted tool. And, uh, it's just wild to think, you know, Hey, grandpa, can I have this old rifle? Sure, kid. And it's like, and then little junior does what with it, you know, beats it up, scratches it up, not knowing that one day it's going to be worth several thousand dollars and doesn't care. All that's just grandpa's old rifle to him. Well, that brings up another point too, is like the value of a given firearm is going to be tied to quality as well as what it actually is and any sort of, um, you know, history or rarity or whatever the case might be. But like, yeah, you buy a, you buy a certain gun for a given price, but you use it and you kind of abuse it and you go to resell it. Is it going to hold the highest resale value? No. So you've got to factor in kind of those variables as well. So notwithstanding, you know, the use of a gun, like you, you buy it, you put it in the closet and it stays there, whatever, and it's in good storage conditions. Yes, it's going to retain its value and it's going to probably increase in value over time. But I, I think that over time that that curve slows 
right? It's not going to be like exponential the entire life of the firearm. I don't think, but I think it depends you know. on gun culture. You know, it, it depends on the culture that surrounds that given firearm. I mean, like think about how, um, famous like the West is to people, you know, cowboys and Indians and all that sort of stuff. I mean, the Winchester has like sort of a legendary status, right? So yeah, you're going to have, you know, some young guy who might be in his fifties or sixties now, or maybe even his seventies or eighties, right? Mm. You might have someone that's later in life that when they were a kid, you know, they used to watch all the Westerns with their grandpa and they, they saw the same Winchester rifle in every episode. So it's like there's going to have that nostalgia quality that some people mm. are going to associate with certain types of guns. And, um, and we're guilty of it. I mean, look, look at guys in our generation that look at movies like Heat, for instance. Mm. And like you're thinking, wow, I want to acquire all the guns from Heat, mm-hmm. or there's some famous movie that's got happens to have guns in it. I mean, how many how many people rewound the VHS tape back in the day and watched the Mac Ten flipping down the stairs in True Lies mm-hmm. over and over? And it's like, all right, there's that's not really possible, but it's still cool. And you think, wow, that's an awesome machine gun. And who 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 can forget like Arnold Schwarzenegger gunning people down with an AR-180? a full auto one with a folding stock i mean like how could you not like want a gun like that like it's just cool or the you know long slide 45 with a laser sighting system i mean come on like guns have a cultural impact on us that does affect the amount of money we're willing to spend on those things just look at the people that do all of that um what do they call it when they go to the um when they go to like those nerd conventions and they dress up, oh, cosplay. like uh, cosplay type stuff. I mean, yeah. those, those people look Com- Comic Con. Yeah, 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 like Comic Con. Look, they spend a lot of money on those mm-hmm. costumes, man. And and, and there, is there any logistical reason to spend that much money? I mean, well, if you're passionate about really doing the character justice, mm-hmm. well, then the the sky's the limit. I mean, there's guys that are taking broom handles that are real and 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 doing like legit Han Solo blasters just so they can look like Han Solo at that Comic Con. Mm-hmm. So what someone is willing to spend on a given commodity is directly related to the emotional attachment they have to that commodity as well. And I think that that's um, certainly a point of interest. Yeah, those are certainly like very specific use cases mm-hmm. kind of outside of the norm. Um, well, like like I was going to mention, along that kind of slow curve, there can be like peaks, you know, like um, increases in the value based on like pop culture, movies, that sort of thing. I mean, I remember when, um, this is the last thing I'll say, but I remember when, uh, Jurassic World, the, not the newest one, but like the first one where they were using 1895, you know, Marlins, right? I didn't know anything about the movie at the time. And I was looking for one of those guns used and I finally found one in the shop. I'm like, man, why is that price so high? Like, I swear I looked at this thing like last week and it was like 150 bucks less. It's like, oh, well, it's a movie gun now. I'm thinking, all right, come on. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't even seen the movie. What are you talking about? But everybody's buying up 1895s and putting, you know, like Nikon, like aluminum, raw anodized scopes on them to make them look just like the one in Jurassic World. I right? mean, think about how many people have paid out the nose for a past 12 because of Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be that nostalgia quality with there guns is. that make people want to break out their pocketbook. I mean, and look, we're guilty of it. A lot of the guns I own, I don't necessarily own because, you know, they're useful tools, but because they're cool, because they have history, because I have an emotional attachment to history and the conflicts they were used in. So, 
you never know what makes a person tick and what makes them willing to pay what they're willing to pay for a given commodity. So guns are fascinating that they do come with some military history attached to them in a lot of cases with milserps and things. Uh, we've got the, the, the pop culture references that always make it an interesting uh, type of setup. And there's also just the, the, the idea of discovering something that you weren't familiar with. You know, that was when I was early on in my gun buying experience as a young man, that was what always got me, you know, like the first time I picked up a uh, Hakeem service rifle, right? And I was like, what the heck is this freaking thing? It's got this weird sliding cover and, oh crap, this thing will jam the ever-loving mess out of your finger if you're not careful. And how do you load it? How do you use it? The guy at the store didn't even know what the caliber was. It, how could you not be fascinated by something like that? Especially when my first one, I paid like 350 barking dollars for. I mean, that's worth the price of admission just to pull the dang thing apart and look at it and see how it works. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's always going to be that curiosity that, that people have with engineering. And that was, that was really what got me into guns was just the curiosity about how they work, the engineering aspect of it, the conflicts they were used in. And, uh, and gosh, they're quite fun tools at the same time. So I bought just, my Hakeem for a much simpler reason. I just wanted to put a hot dog in it and close the action and see what happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I'm just kidding. They will slam the crap out of your finger. Uh, but I think that we covered this quite well. And, uh, you know, I think the answer is no. There's not really a market cap. I think the sky's the limit. It'll just get down to, like, pricing certain people out, which sucks, especially when a lot of these guns are really common. And to see the prices on them go up the way they have, I don't know if it's just due to inflation and everything as well. That's certainly a factor. Uh, inflation will always be a factor, but even beyond inflation, I think that guns are an investment that are relatively inflation-proof to some degree. They are a commodity that will always have value no matter what goes on in your economy, no matter what type of government system you have, no matter uh, what type of currency you use, no matter what your idea of, of value is. Guns always have intrinsic value because they are useful tools. So I think that's important to remember too, is like while we discuss money and, and the value of guns, uh, always remember the true value of guns, which is that they are useful tools. And I think that that's certainly something to consider, but thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, many more videos on the way. We got a lot more gripes and I hope everybody enjoyed the meltdown. We got more meltdowns on the way. We're going to be filming. Um, anything else before we head on, Chad? Nah, we're good. <laughs> All right. Well, have a good one and we'll see you guys soon. And appreciate the support.